We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. Coming up, supporters of police reform are expressing relief at the guilty verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial Tuesday, saying it's a big step forward toward holding law enforcement accountable for use of excessive force. But how is the verdict being interpreted by police chiefs, rank-and-file officers, and unions, including those that have resisted or blocked efforts to reform law enforcement in the past? We'll talk with San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott about the verdict, and later with two supporters of police reform who disagree on how best to make change happen. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. Well, yesterday's guilty verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial was met with relief and cheers among those who've been demanding more accountability for police officers. The circumstances of George Floyd's murder, how he died, and the fact that it was all caught on video compelled the chief of police in Minneapolis and other police officers to testify for the prosecution. But is it really a new day on the road to police reform, and how do law enforcement officials and organizations see the verdict? Joining us first is San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott. And Chief Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, and good morning to everybody. I'm guessing that you, like so many of us, were watching those verdicts being read live by the judge. Um, what was your reaction? I, I'm, I'm guessing that given all the different uh, issues on your plate at that moment uh, with uh, different scenarios, that you were very relieved. Well, yeah, relief is an understatement. Um, I, I, my, my, my first thought actually went to George Floyd, Mr. Floyd's family, because in the past year, seeing them uh, on the news almost daily, um, it, it brings this whole situation back to humanity. And so that was actually my first thought is I, I can't imagine, you know, the relief and the, the you know, whatever sense of not closure because look, they're, they're the person that they love will never be coming home. So I don't know if this is ever closed, but it had to be a sense of relief and, and vindication for that family, which I, you know, my heart really was with them at that moment. And then, you know, I started to process it and what it meant to so many other people, including me. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I uh, it, it took me back to 1992, uh, having Rodney that King. same ang- Rodney King, uh, April 29th, having that same anxiety about what I thought was going to happen, uh, which didn't happen. And I think many of us were in that place yesterday. We really didn't know. We, we heard what we heard from the prosecution, but we really didn't know. So I think for a lot of people, it was um, people that may not have had justice in their cases. 
I think it was a relief and vindication for them too. So there's so much involved in this. There's so much bigger than just that single incident. Yeah. As you say, there was really shock and anger in 1992 when those police officers were acquitted uh, of the beating of Rodney King, which also was really the first incident like that caught on video. Um, And there have been so many cases like that in the intervening years. Why do you think this one turned out different from every other or most other prosecutions of police officers? Well, I, I didn't have the opportunity to watch all of the trial. I, you know, caught bits and pieces of it and, you know, late night get, getting home, watching commentary on the news about it. But I, I just think we're at a place in our society today where people are looking at these type of incidents from a different lens. Um, I, I think so much of the past has been wrapped up into everybody's frustrations that we saw over the last summer, the past summer, rather, you know, biggest movement in this nation's history. I think all that comes into play here, you know, um, decades, generations of, of this type of injustice that particularly in, among the African-American community that, that, you know, we've seen. And I think all these things have just kind of surfaced to a point where we're at a different place than we were in 1992. I truly believe that. And I think this incident is a pivotal moment in our history. You said earlier that it was very emotional for you. And I'm wondering, as a black man, somebody who was born and grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, not long after that church was bombed and those four uh, little girls were killed, does this whole issue and this particular verdict, does it feel personal for you? It it does. It's very personal for me. And, you know, I'm glad you you mentioned that because, you know, we, we brought Lisa McNair here to San Francisco uh, to talk about and share her experience there. We should just say that it was her older sister that was one of the girls killed in that bombing. It it was. And, and, you know, ironically, one of the things when I was talking to her and arranging the trip, one of the things that she told me, she wanted to meet our mayor. She wanted to meet uh, Mayor Breed. And and, and so I set that up and she met Mayor Breed because I think in, in Mayor Breed, I don't think I know, we had this conversation and I heard her talk to Mayor Breed. She sees a champion for justice and, um, she was just so thrilled to meet Mayor London Breed. You know, I arranged it, and Mayor Breed was gracious enough to to take time to to meet her. And but the reason I bring that up is because you asked the question earlier about what's different. Uh, we have people in leadership positions who have li- have lived these experiences. Unlike 1992, I don't think we had this type of level of leadership in in place in 1992, and that speaks to progress in our nation, understanding that we still have a long way to go. But, you know, we have a mayor who's a champion for, for social justice, and she always been. So Miss McNair wanted to meet her. <laughs> and and so that kind of started her visit to San Francisco off the right way, because by the time we got to speak to our, our command staff, um, it, it was it was a very powerful, very powerful uh, three hours, three and a half hours. Well, let's talk about that because, as you know, uh, the, sometimes the command staff and the rank and file, but certainly the unions representing police officers, have been a real obstacle. They have really, and, and even in San Francisco, the POA has not had the most enlightened 
leadership in in recent decades i think that's fair to say um so what are you say it's a new day do they think it's a new day or is it just like are they glad that day's over so now they can sort of go back to you know not talking about george floyd well here, here's what i can say i i know yesterday the, the san francisco poa put out a a statement along with um, the san jose poa and the los angeles police protective league which is their poa there was a joint statement uh, in summary saying that they believe that the decision that the jury came to was the right decision. Um, you know, hey, that's a step. That's a huge step. And I, and I can say, hey, I haven't always seen eye to eye with the POA and we still have our disagreements. Don't get me wrong and don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. But I do see a leadership in the POA that is is really at this moment working with me to really institute change and like i say we don't always see eye to eye uh but they're making an effort and yeah. and i and it's something that i'm you know i think people need to know um we we can't forget the past you know I, i'm not asking anybody to forget you know the past but we got to move forward and mm -hmm. so there's a willingness to do that and i think that statement that they made yesterday uh is is a step in the right direction well and they did something similar right after uh the george floyd video emerged i mean back in june of 2020 uh saying condemning that and saying that's not right that's not good policy it's not good policing um but at the same time i'm, I'm guessing it's a lot easier to condemn what happened in minneapolis than it would be to do the same with your own police department and there have been as you know many criticisms of shootings of people like Mario Woods in the Bayview and others. There have been, in fact, I think during the course of this trial, there were uh, two or three black men shot and killed by police around the country. Now, the circumstances of all those are all each different. But the point is, um, you know, it's it, it's it's a, it's 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 sort of it's relatively it seems relatively easy to me to be a police union representative and condemn what, uh, you know, Derek Chauvin did harder when those are when, they, when it's a little more gray. Well, you're absolutely right. It is easier when it's somebody else. And so here's part of our strategy as an organization to get to that place. I mean, you're part of, of bringing, you know, Lisa McNair in, and we also brought uh, Miss Laura King in to talk to our command staff, is making an attempt to get to that place where we can have a conversation. And we got to have a conversation about ourselves anyway. Look, we have our own issues that we need to fix. You mentioned some shootings where lives were lost. And, you know, I, I've met many of those families and we have our own issues to fix. So let me start by saying that. And there has to be acknowledgement. I'm going to go back to the humanity issue of lives that were lost in our own city and things that moving forward, we don't want to repeat. So, yeah, it, it is harder when it's you and when it's in your house and your organization. But we have to get to that place. So part of our strategy to get to that place is uh, let's start having these conversations to address the root cause of, you know, a lot of what's happening in this country right now. We brought Lisa in to talk about not only race, hatred, uh, racially based hatred, and, and but we also brought her in so she can talk about reconciliation, forgiveness, so she can talk about how her family did not feel that the criminal justice system was there for them when her sister was blown up in that church and they had to, to live through this for, for 14 years before and a change of leadership before Bill Baxley 
took this case and said, we're going we're gonna to open this case back up and we're going to bring these people to justice. Uh, the criminal justice system failed them. I, I, we wanted our command staff to hear that because we still have those issues today. You know, there are people in this city who feel like we failed them and, and rightfully so. Um, but we have to get to that place and get to that space where we can have those conversations. And it's easier to open people's hearts and minds when you start out of your own house. And, you know, that's, that's a strategy to get there, but we are getting there and we brought it closer to time when we brought in, um, Ms. King. Yeah. And to, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer talking with San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott. Um, you know, there there is still a tendency to, uh, if you're a police officer, not to uh, intervene when you see something like this. I mean, there were three other, I think, officers uh, as Derek Chauvin kneeled on George Floyd's neck. Um, none of them intervened to try to stop. There was a police officer from Buffalo, New York, just a few days ago who was vindicated 15 years after she was fired for stopping a police officer, a uh, fellow police officer, from punching somebody in the face on the street. So how do you change that culture? Well, I think that that is a problem in our profession, but on the flip side of that, the ones, the incidents where officers do intervene, you never hear about them. And that does happen. Yeah. Um, so we have a lot of work to do. And a lot of that is policy, which, you know, we, the San Francisco Police Department in 2016, when we changed our use of force policy, we, we instituted a duty to intervene. Yeah. Now, Let me, I'm going to stop you there. I apologize. We'll come back to that point. We need to take a quick break. We're going to continue our conversation with San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott and bring in some other voices as well. And we'd love to hear from you. What do you think about the verdict? Is it going to create a real change in policing? Give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or if you like, you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org. More with San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here. We're continuing our conversation with San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott. If you want to join us, give us a call at 866-733-6786, or you can reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum, or email us. It's forum at kqed.org. Chief, uh, I, I interrupted you there just before the break. You were talking about the changing culture uh, of police departments. And I'm wondering, you know, you came in as an outsider, which are, is not always welcome in police departments. You came from L.A. Uh, you were also uh, black, not the, not the city's first black police chief, but nonetheless. Uh, how do you, how, how does that complicate your trying to bring about change, both having been an outsider and being African-American? Well, it, it does have its complexities, but it also has its benefits. Um, coming in with fresh eyes and having the perspective of an African-American that's been through my own, you know, racially based experiences and 
profiling and those type of issues and then being in this you know profession for as long as I have it brought a set of fresh eyes so um, that that helped and look it, it helps to have you know Mayor Lee brought me in and I, I am thankful for the opportunity that Mayor Breed when she made the decision to keep me here which she didn't have to do but you know I think there's a lot, I not think I know because I had, I've had so many conversations with Mayor Breed about the, these issues of social justice and policing and including our conversation yesterday. Um, it, it, it's, it's helpful when you come in as an outsider to have people who support what you're trying to do because making these decisions, you're not necessarily gonna be popular. Uh, you might not be like, which I, that's never been my thing anyway. You know, I, I, am here to do the right thing. So that, that, but, but that can't, can have an impact because, you know, um, you know, people start whispering and talking and, you know, we don't like this guy and he's an outsider and all this stuff. And sometimes, you know, that, that lands with certain people, uh, with our mayor, she's been supportive, uh, knowing that we got to make the hard decisions and I have to make the hard decisions. And so, that provides um, that provides a lot of confidence to do what needs to be done, um, and, and so I think yeah. To answer your question, it is very complex, but it has its benefits too. Coming yeah. in with fresh eyes and looking at things differently and not being caught up in a you know mindset uh, has its benefits. And I didn't have any strings attached. You know, I, mm-hmm. I had no strings attached when I came here. Meaning what? Meaning. Nobody knew me. I didn't owe anybody anything except for the people of the city and the people in this department that I've been appointed to lead to do what's right. You know, I, I didn't, there was no political favors or anything like that, that, you know, a lot of times that come with this job. So the, the process, they purposely kept that out of the process. So it, it allowed me to start without baggage strings attached. And when you're trying to, you know, implement the level of change that was in front of us, like that's really important. That's a really important thing to have. And yeah. and so, and I had that. So it, it really, that, like I said, there were some benefits. I know there have been a lot of changes in the SFPD um, in terms of policy and probably, uh, you know, and, and there continue to be calls for this whole defund the police, which means a different things to different people. It's kind of a political Rorschach test, you know. Uh, in, in some ways, the SFPD has begun to rethink policing, and I think that's, in some ways, what defund the police means, like reallocate resources to social workers or away from, uh, you know, sh- police shouldn't be responding to or shouldn't be responding alone to cases of people with mental health problems. Um, how do you see that phrase, defund the police, and what's the upside of it as you look at it? Well, you know, I, I've made statements from the start when, when our mayor called me and, and told me what she was planning to do. I supported it from the start. Now, I don't see... Well, and just, let, just so people know, she did reallocate some money, right, from the police from right. the police department. Yeah. It, right, reallocate money. So I, I, defunding means different things to different people. You know, there are people that wanna, want to abolish police, as you, as you just uh, said. Um, to reallocate funding to communities that need funding the most is a smart thing to do because you mentioned the types of calls that we have to respond to. And and let's talk about the African-American community because that's where the reallocation of funding went. There's so many root cause issues that, that drive a lot of what we have to face in terms of addressing violent crime and all the trauma that goes along with that, uh, addressing 
you know, some of the trauma caused by policing and, you know, education and all these root cause things that we need to be in a better place. To me, it just makes sense to invest in those things. And if we do that and we do it smartly and, and uh, eventually those investments, hopefully, not hopefully, they will, they will pay off where it makes a lot of the things that feed into these cycles of crime and and people being in the in places where we do have to interact with them in a in a not positive way, it, it addresses those root causes. And that was the spirit behind that. How can it just make sense to me? I mean, I, I don't think anybody would argue that. So the part of the the trick here and the complexity was, you know, a lot of people want to make this a zero sum game. And it's not, because I believe we have to have effective police departments who serve and do things constitutionally fairly in the right way but we also have to address those issues and there's only one pot of money so the mayor and the elected officials have to make some really difficult decisions and they have to balance those decisions to try to get the best of both worlds so it's not an easy task yeah it's complicated i'm going to go to the phones now again the number if you want to join us talking at the moment with san francisco police chief bill scott will be joined by a couple of other guests shortly but the number is 866-733-6786 again 866-733-6786 or get in touch on twitter and facebook we're at kqed forum let's go to alexandra in san francisco you're first Thank you so much, and good morning. Um, I have two comments. One is, once I called the police as a second uh, choice after mobile crises was unable to respond due to the lack of uh, staffing, and I had a case of someone with a brain injury that needed assistance. When the police showed up, eventually they had a, they were ready with batons, and I had to convince them that this was not an incident where uh, a person was creating any kind of chaos. Uh, in a way, luckily, the person had already left, and I was very happy the person had left because the person would have not understood what was going on, would have probably reacted um, fearfully, and the police might have thought that that person needed control. So. I was really scared when I saw the batons in hand, ready to go uh, for a situation that was not calling for such um, level of intensity or response. And my second comment is I think that police um, chiefs and unions need to tell their officers that they will not be protected, covered legally um, if they are working outside of their own um, training, uh, that this is not acceptable and that people need to listen and watch first. And I am pro-police. Uh, I have worked with police officers in the past. I, I love police officers. I think they're wonderful people, but they cannot also, um, I know some people have not been very nice. They, they step out of line. They think they have a lot of power and, um, and they cannot walk around with that type of power when they go into an event not knowing what's going yeah. on, and they yeah. need to listen to first. Alexander, thanks. You bring up some good points. And, Chief, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, that Alexander was uh, alluding to is the whole idea of de-escalation, you know. Uh, you look at some of these tapes, uh, the Dante Wright incident in Min- Minnesota, where the officer th- says she thought she was reaching for a taser and shot Dante Wright dead. Uh, you know, what? why isn't de-escalation? I, you know, some looked at the Mario Woods tape and thought the same thing. Like, why isn't there another way, a better way? Why is, why is the first um, in, uh, the first sort of uh, in, um, uh, in, in, 
reaction from officers on the scene to, to sort of like grab the batons. And, and I realize that doesn't happen all the time, but you know, what, 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 where is de-escalation in their training? Well, de-escalation is in all of our training and particularly when it comes to crisis uh, intervention and crisis response, like the, the caller just mentioned. Now um, we are constantly striving to get better at that, but to answer your question, it, it, it should not be the first response to grab a baton, you know, and that's why the training emphasizes putting yourself as an officer in a position where you have the time and the distance to not have to react. And if you overcommit yourself, um, you take away that opportunity and you, you can force the issue. Um, and we have to not put ourselves in that position. So that's part of the training. Now, you know, every situation is different, but the thought process and the training and what we strive for is time, distance, put yourself in a position where you don't have to make those type of, of reactions, impulsive reactions, because you've gotten too close to somebody or you didn't give yourself enough space to allow them to do whatever it is that they're about to do. And that's a part of the training that is drilled into our officers. And look, hey, we don't always get it right. And we need to, we always need to get better at that. And our training has evolved. But it's a, a huge part of our training in this department. De-escalation is written in our use of force policy. That was one of the reform changes in, in 2016. Um, and we have modeled training around that whole concept. We created a block of training called Critical Mindset Coordinated Response uh, that really hones in on that portion of our training, but from a team concept. because. As an individual officer, you respond, you, you should know what to do based on policy training, but oftentimes officers are responding in, in numbers and you have, there has to be a coordination and teamwork at the scene. And when that breaks down, some of the things that you mentioned end up falling through the cracks. Yeah. And so we, we've instituted a whole block of training to address that based on mistakes of, of, of the past. Yeah. We're talking about the uh, Chauvin guilty verdict, uh, what it may mean for police reform with San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott. And joining us now are Latifa Simon. She is co-chair of Governor Newsom's Police Reform Task Force and a BART board member. And Otis Taylor Jr., soon to be KQED's new supervising senior editor of Race and Equity. Latifa and Otis, welcome. Hey, how you doing? Good morning. Hi, Otis. Hey, hey doing Latifa. Well. How are you doing? Well. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Latifa, let me begin with you. Uh, first, any reaction to what you've been listening to with the chief? Um, and, and this notion that this is a new day. I mean, is that is that how you see it? Or or is it really a lot more complicated and difficult than that? You know, I don't I don't know if it's a new day during during the verdict, the announcement yesterday. Many of us, we wept. Um, for a number of reasons. We know that the conviction, um, that there was a verdict, that there was a verdict, but yet has that police department writ large, has a, a system um, apologized for the murder of this father, for this man. One of the things that the trial did provide for the nation was we got to see what we rarely witness is a prosecution creating a, a a deep story of an imperfect and loved man and how he in fact deserved to live. Typically we see the prosecutor's office defending uh, the police officer, even though they're supposed to fight on the other side. 
understanding that police officers who do murder black and brown men create an opportunity for us to see them as judge, jury, and executioner. So yes, of course, many of us wept with excitement that potentially law enforcement, our court, will hold accountable folks who were sworn to protect and serve. One of the things that happened last night, many of us, both activists, organizers, mothers, and families, um, got to hear a new name, uh, Makia Bryant, a 16-year-old girl who was shot in her chest after she called the police for help. We know that every day in the United States of America that we have leaders in law enforcement institutions who literally refuse to shift the lexicon and how they see black and brown bodies. I thank Chief Scott. Chief Scott has a very, very difficult job on his hands because I grew up in San Francisco and Chief Scott knows this, we've talked about it. In the 80s, my cousins, black men, would tell stories about how white police officers would take them to the San Bruno Hills with no arrest, just the detention, and beat them up and put them right back in the street. We have a problem. Those activities have not shifted. But it's also, and I'll stop here, important for us to ensure that our conversation is complicated. People in communities deserve support and protection. What they don't deserve is to be treated like non-humans by the folks who were hired and trained for 27 weeks and sworn to treat them as such. Um, so I, I think it's a, it is a new day in which hopefully on the front pages of every newspaper in this country and abroad, we're, we're talking about uh, folks being held accountable who weren't held accountable before for their savagery. And Otis, as someone who has covered uh, the Vallejo Police Department, which has had many problems uh, over the years, um, how do you see this this question of, uh, you know, the path forward in terms of reform and what yesterday's verdict means? Sure. Thank you, Scott. Uh, to me, there isn't a cause for celebration. This is barely an acknowledgement of a systemic issue. If a police officer being convicted of charges changed things, then it should have happened after Walter Scott was shot in the back while fleeing a police officer in South Carolina in 2015. The officer, who I'll not name, was sentenced to 20 years. Scott, I don't know if we're supposed to believe that the institution of policing, as it currently exists, is the best we can do. Police engage with people in crisis, people who need a compassionate response. But I believe police are incapable of that compassion because by nature, the job of policing is coercive. The job is about power and subjugation. Go ahead, Scott. Well, I was going to say, is that do you think that's a matter of training and recruitment? I mean, are, you know, are, are there just too many of the quote unquote wrong kind of people who are serving as police officers or like when you say they're incapable of it, what does that mean? It means the institution, Scott. We are talking about individual police officers, right? But I am saying the institution of policing is about power and subjugation. And what we're witnessing on social media, an era ushered in with the fatal shooting of Oscar Grant at Fruitvale Station, won't stop unless we address policing at its very core. That's right. That's right. That also means the media. We can no longer blindly accept the police narrative of events. Yeah. If there's one takeaway from fatal shootings, it's that police will lie to shape public perception of events. We must be more critical. We must demand more transparency from police because it's not just the shooting, Scott. 
It's the use of excessive force, which has been glamorized by film and TV. Every person suspected of wrongdoing didn't step out of a law and order murder plot. Chief Scott, respond to that because, you know, the the initial report and explanation from the Minneapolis Police Department right after George Floyd died, it was a very benign uh, sort of description. There was no mention at all of what Derek Chauvin did. Um, And, and, you know, I don't know if if who saw the video, who knew exactly what had happened at that point. Uh, But what are your thoughts about that question of transparency and just saying, look, we messed up. I mean, I realize there are also legal liability issues and many other issues to say something like that. But, you know, how should police departments deal with that? And how was it wrong the way that the Minneapolis did? Yeah, thank thank you. And then, first of all, um, let me say hi to uh, Latifa and Otis. Welcome back, hey, Otis. Chief. Hey, what's up, Chief? Thank you for all that you're doing, Chief. I mean, you did really come into this department um, like very few chiefs in the United States last year and completely reorganized your budget. Folks saw you. Folks saw what you did. And I and I, as you know, someone who, who's never seen really that kind of leadership, I think we need to acknowledge it when we see it. And Chief, before I think I'm going to, rather than having you start your answer, I'm going to hold uh, until we take a break, and then we'll come back. We'll start with you. Listening uh, to Forum, I'm Scott Schaefer, talking with uh, Chief Bill Scott from the San Francisco Police Department and Latifa Simon. She's a BART board member and also co-chair of Governor Newsom's Police Reform Task Force. And Otis Taylor, former East Bay columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, soon to be one of my colleagues right here at KQED. And uh, we're going to continue our conversation with all three of them. If you'd like, give us a call. It's 866-733-6786. Also, get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. More to come. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour. We're talking about the Chauvin guilty verdict with San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott. Also, Latifa Simon, co-chair of Governor Newsom's Police Reform Task Force. She's also a BART board member, by the way. And Otis Taylor, who is soon to be KQED's new supervising senior editor of Race and Equity. And uh, Chief Scott, I uh, you were about to answer, and you uh, very politely waited uh, until after the break. We were talking about police transparency uh, and your thoughts about that. Go ahead. Thank you. So I, I, I wanted to, if I could just take a second to talk about, you know, whether it's a new day or not. And I, and I think it's a part of the evolution. And I think some things are very new about today. Look, in 1992, and if we go back further, it's even worse. Look at who's on this call right now. People in positions. We have Otis, who right. is in a position to challenge the police narrative. We, we didn't have that in the 60s. We, we barely had it in 1992. We have Latifa who sits on, you know, the, the the BART board and she's in a position to influence change. We have London Breed who, when I called yesterday to talk about this issue, I could feel it in her heart about how she felt about this verdict. She's in a position to make change. You have the chief of police who grew up in a racist South 
Birmingham, mm-hmm. Alabama, who've seen all this stuff, you know, it, so we have all these people in position now. And like, you, you got to have all the ingredients in the cake to bake the cake. <laughs> I think what's new about today is the ingredients are here. We just got to put them together and bake the cake. Hmm. Interesting. So I do think that it's a new day. And well, I think it's, it's, it gives us all hope. Now, well, the said. transparency question, um, that has to happen. And I, I'll speak for the San Francisco Police Department because I know we work very hard to be transparent, uh, particularly in these type of incidents where somebody lose, lose, loses their lives. And we don't spin. We don't we, we put the facts out there. We we are transparent. We're consistent with our transparency. We, we have a process that's vetted by many, many people who all, not all of them wear a uniform. Um, so we look at things from angles of humanity because what's attached to all this is there's a family behind this. As Latifah said, there's a, there's a man who won't come home to his family. There are people in San Francisco, whether we think these things are quote unquote justified or not, there's humanity behind all of this. And we have to remind ourselves of that. I'm going to, if I can just take 30 more seconds <laughs> go for it to sit in a room with Laura King, Rodney King's daughter, and watch for an hour video. Uh, we watched LA 92, our command staff, with, with Laura King. Wow. And to sit next to her and see and hear tears, hear her crying, watching these images, and then to tell us how that incident impacted her life. We needed to hear that. And look, as you said earlier, Scott, we have our own people in this in this city, and, and we want to get to the place where we can have these discussions with those families too when they're ready to have them. Uh, but we got to get to that place because it's it's much harder to look at your own house, as I said earlier. But I'm going to tell you how powerful that was for me. I've been in this business 31 years, and to sit down next to her and watch that watch that documentary with her and hear from her eyes how. Her health was impacted by this, how she still feels when the police get behind her and, and the fact that she's willing, she was willing to come to San Francisco and sit down with, uh, with us and have this conversation. I can't tell you how powerful that was. Hmm. I just talked to her this morning because I want, I, 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 number one, I wanted her permission to share this story. But the other thing, um, it, she, she, she cried. She's, she said, all that happened to my father, I wish he was here to see this. I mm-hmm. wish she was here, he was here to see that much of this started with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it means a lot to a lot of people. And I think there is a new day angle to that that's very powerful. And we have to mm-hmm. seize this moment. All yeah. of us on this call, mm-hmm. we have to seize this moment. Otis, what are your thoughts about the idea of change coming from within, from the top, uh, with people like Chief Scott, uh, and from the outside, uh, from the community, from other elected officials, from activists? Like, what's that mix? Right, right. And, and um, I, I applaud Chief Scott for um, watching LA-92 because that movie uh, remains uh, a powerful um, visual experience for me. But I'll say it's been 30 years since Rodney King's brutal beating was captured on video and broadcast. Three officers were quitted and the jury failed to reach a verdict on the fourth. The officers would have walked away if 
and federal government didn't open a separate civil rights case. And why did that happen? It happened because of the uprising in L.A. in 1992. Okay. Public officials right. don't respond unless people are in the streets. Yesterday, a black teenage girl was fatally shot by a Columbus police officer. Less than two weeks ago, yeah. an officer in Brooklyn Center, a suburb of Minneapolis, fatally shot a black man mistaking a gun for a taser. But, but also in Minnesota in the last week, a white man drove away from police dragging an officer and striking him with a hammer. But guess what? Instead of being shot, that white man was arrested. So police use all their training to apprehend that man and mass shooters, but they can't use any of that training to de-escalate a situation with people of color. Yeah. Well, so and don't, we yeah. need more, much more oversight with policing. Yeah. Well, you know, well, to Otis's point, Latifi, can, I, yeah. can, can I respond? Please. You know, one of the the, the most um, humbling job that I have is my nine to five. I'm the president of an amazing organization called the Akhenati Foundation, and it's been around for two decades funding the audacious and visionary leaders in Oakland who have set themselves up in their organizations to combat systemic racism. And I gotta say, it is the leaders um, that make us uncomfortable, who shine a mirror to systems that mm. have not shifted, like Kat Brooks, who runs the Anti-Police Terror Project, and she uses terror very clearly. Um, and the mothers and the fathers who have had the audacity to stand in the face of power after cradling their dead children to demand demand a different system. No police chief and no union leader has led the nation in police reform and transformation. To your point, Otis, it has been the ground. And I want to be clear here. Right. It is. It has not been union leaders. It has right. not been leaders of the fraternal order. It has not been mayors in the United States. In fact, this is important. In many cities across the country, police officers are more likely to be white than their citizens they're sworn to protect. The Marshall Project found in an analysis most recently that in U.S. police departments of the 15 largest American cities in which the majority of the officers are non-white, only one in Memphis, Tennessee, is a union leader black. And so you may have a progressive police chief, you may have a progressive mayor, you may have folks who deeply wanna change systems, but if the person who is leading the moral fabric, who is your union leader, who is representing that fraternal order, is saying that reform, if people just stop resisting arrest or committing crimes, then we wouldn't have a problem. I have that text in my phone from a union leader within the Bay Area. This is still an issue. And again, if it were not for movements, if it were not for the audacious leaders 60 years ago who said we should not bow down to segregation. They saw something that we can't see. So the folks who are talking about refunding communities, the folks who are talking about transforming safety, we can't even imagine what that would look like because we are so addicted to how we think about policing in this country. And so we need to thank and fund and support and nurture those leaders who see a different kind of transformative system of safety in our communities. Because the one we have ain't working. Some comments from our listeners. Matt writes, uh, if one or more of the onlookers had rushed in and knocked Officer Chauvin off of George Floyd, it may have saved his life, but they would have faced violence at the hands of all the officers present and faced felony charges. What would you advise citizens to do in that situation in the future besides 
get a video because that made all the difference. Chief, what, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm going to, first of all, let me thank Latifa for her comments and, and Otis. Look, I, I, they're right. I mean, in terms of what's forced change in this country are the people. And taken to the street. I wouldn't be sitting in the seat if it weren't for those type of events as the chief of police. So I, I, amen to that. I do think it helps to have people who are progressive thought leaders and positions to help that change. But she's absolutely right. Now, uh, to the question, to the caller's question, goes back to a question you asked earlier uh, about duty to intervene. You know. Because he, he's the, that caller is right. If he goes in and, and, and tries to you know, do that type of thing, he probably would be uh, charged with interfering. The risk in that is you, sometimes you don't know what you don't know about the situation. Hmm. But here, we, we know what we know now about that, that you know, Mr. Mr. Floyd's case and, and former officer, uh, now convicted officer, former officer Chauvin's situation. We know what we know now. That responsibility and that accountability lies with the people who are entrusted to do the right thing. And that's, I think, what Latifah said earlier and what Otis said earlier. Yeah, we need the oversight. We need the push. We need all the energy that's going to force the change. But at the end of the day, we came on this job to do the right thing. And when we don't, we have to be held accountable. That's the bottom line. Here's another comment from a listener who asks, how can we prevent police officers who have gotten fired from one to police department for abusive use of force and other similar transgressions from ever being a police officer in another jurisdiction? And can uh, he, meaning, uh, I guess you, the chief, uh, speak to police unions, which really aren't labor unions, but seem to be an agency that defends bad police? There is legislation right now in Sacramento that would do just that, That's right. uh, Chief. That's right. Yeah, and Latifa, maybe tell us a little bit yeah. about what that legislation would do, and then I'd love to get a comment from Otis and uh, the Chief. Yeah, did you, who did you want to Yeah, Latifa, yeah. just like sort of, if you could sort of summarize that legislation right now, sure. it would make it harder for, for officers who get fired to get, you know, hired down the road by another police department. One of the things that, you know, we've been so lucky to do, again, with many of the grantees that I work with at Akhenati and my role with the Governor Newsom's task force is to interview folks from across the state, both activists, families, regular community members, and in fact, law enforcement. What is overwhelmingly clear is that folks are supporting legislation to disband qual uh, qualified immunity. Police officers who get in trouble with one police department can't, will, can in fact either get fired if they don't, uh, they don't have a sustained conviction, they can go work for someone else. Can you imagine if you committed malpractice in the operating room and that you treated one kind of patient differently than the other, you saw them as different, as one more superior than the other, could you go and work at the next hospital down the road? Well, in the state of California, we are one of only five states in the country um, that make that so. It's, it's ridiculous. So the Police Officer Bill of Rights, we must look at it. But I want to say one thing. It is a new day. And I, I want to thank you for shifting the conversation, Chief, because we also have uh, an attorney general elect uh, who, well, I would say he's an appointee, who in his time in the state legislature passed many progressive bills, one being that any officer-involved shooting that is a fatal shooting will be looked at by the attorney general. That is fundamentally transformative because we know citizens review committees are fantastic, but police cannot police and oversee themselves. 
DAs mm -hmm. in the same counties oftentimes haven't done a good idea, a, a good job at bringing justice to families. So we 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 have many bills in the state legislature. Dr. Sherry, uh, Dr. Shirley Weber was extremely helpful in working with families to advance legislation that we call 392 to limit police officers' use of deadly force. And I got to say, Chief Scott, you know, before it was mandatory to begin the training, he and others, like the chief of the BART board, my chief, um, were very, very clear that they needed to get on top of that, that we can't have any more dead bodies uh, under our guns. Otis, you had an experience uh, with the Vallejo Police Department covering a particular lieutenant who was the head of the police union. He was fired after he sent you an email that uh, was uh, certainly perceived as being threatening as you were about to head to Atlanta for a, a, a new job. What are your thoughts about that idea that, you know, what needs to happen so that bad cops don't just, you know, get picked up by some other department and, you know, cause problems there? Sure. Again, this goes back to transparency. Uh, in Vallejo, they released a use of force dashboard that anyone can have access to. But what it doesn't show is who are the officers that are higher than the median um, committing acts of use of force. Um, this goes to the narrative, Scott, really. In Atlanta, where I currently live, the mayor's solution to rising crime and homicides is more police officers. But communities, particularly communities of color, don't need more police because police can't solve the underlying issues that all communities that are occupied police face, and that's poverty, poor education, and lack of access to opportunities in these communities, which were decimated and still reeling from caught the callous war on drugs. We have a problem in this society, Scott. Police are not the solution, and we cannot continue to call on them as doing that because they are not equipped to do that. As Chief Scott has mentioned, the police get calls from everyone, but they cannot handle what everyone needs. So again, we need to rethink what the institution of policing is. And also while rethinking that, we need to be able to know which officers have done what and whether or not they should be allowed on the streets to interact with communities that are trying to deal with trauma already. Well, Ann Otis, I think that's really important, though, that we can complicate the conversation as our people and communities have. If you've watched what's happened with the reimagining public safety task force in Oakland, we have folks in East and West Oakland who are having very distinctive conversations. We must not have police overreach, but we do need to investigate the homicides of young men. Fratricide is a real thing. Sexual trafficking is a real thing. How do we police and create safety? We can have both conversations at the same time, right? We do need to make sure that young men who fall prey, whether it's to community violence, there are folks who care about what's gonna happen after he is buried, right? We need to make sure that that family remains safe. We also need to make sure if I call the police tonight that my young son won't be thrown on the ground and I'm calling for something has nothing to do with him, right? We need to make sure that, the, and Chief Scott has said this, and again, I work with my chief at BART, that their job is to rid the department of racism. God bless them because we know, we know that anti-blackness is in the core of the fraternal order. And for those men and women who take leadership with these departments, who've taken on that oath, 
It is a very, very, very difficult order. But thank you for attempting. But we know that that's a systemic and endemic yeah. problem. We are coming up at the, at the end of the hour. But, Chief, I just want to ask you, if you uh, there are a lot of bills in Sacramento. There are all kinds of proposals. There's a lot of demands. If you as chief could just, you know, change one or two things that would really make a difference, uh, irrespective of the politics and all that, what would it be? Oh, man. Uh, one or two things. Well, first of all, I, <laughs> in 30 I seconds, wanna... <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do believe the um, having some type of system to know which officers a, a decertif decertification type of system, I think, is a step in the right direction. So yeah. thank you uh, Leticia, for bringing that up. And I think she was involved in getting that, pushing that legislation. I think that's a step in the right direction. She was. And uh, I, definitely. I, I, and I apologize for stepping on you there. We are really out of time. We could have gone easily for a lot more time, but we uh, are going to hand it off to Mina Kim in just a moment. But I really want to thank our guests, William Scott, Bill Scott, police chief, San Francisco PD, Latifa Simon, BART board member, uh, also president of the uh, Governor's Police Reform Task Force, Otis Taylor, investigative reporter, soon to be KQED's new supervising senior editor on race and equity. Thank you all so much. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. I apologize for not getting to the calls. We had a lot of them. But stick around because Mina Kim is next and there's another hour of this conversation. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.